0: we're preaching the gospel into. And going back to 1964 and the Berkeley Revolution, which I am convinced in history will be placed down as, as a real watershed, a beginning of a new era in history. I think historians have been working with the Berkeley Revolution for many, many years. And we're trying to understand exactly why men are today like they are, the men to whom we must preach the gospel. And we have looked rather thoroughly at the scientific route. Uh, More, I might say, I thinking back over my lectures these last few days, I would say that I've been able to get the scientific side together perhaps better in these lectures than I ever did, more to my own satisfaction anyway. Uh, Now we want to return to the philosophic side. And we must understand that the word philosophic mustn't put us off. But the danger is we're put off by the word philosophic, as though it's something high and great, and living up there in a house where nobody can attain, except a few strange people on the campus. Uh, but the, in reality, you must always have ground into your bones the fact that every man is a philosopher. And I, I do really feel that evangelicalism has been very, very weak at this point. really have there's been many many points where we've been weak and this is one and that is we do not take enough into account that everybody's a philosopher in the sense of everybody having a world view there is nobody that doesn't have a world view it doesn't exist everybody has a world view through which they they look at things a grid through which they feed things and they things are fed to them from the external world through this grid and then they push them back into the world through their grid Uh, you can think of it as if you had a a sieve made of uh, with a in a certain pattern and you were shaking sand down through it on a smooth table the sand would be in the shape of the pattern on the grid and everybody has a grid through which they see things and that's true of us the only difficulty is uh, the only difference is as i stressed at the beginning of the lectures is that i feel that wise men do not just catch their uh, presuppositions the way they look at things automatically uh, the way most people do but wise people choose their grid as to the grid which explains the universe uh, and which uh, has the answers for the things which they need and the and the two great areas of are the things which they need of course is the universe the fact the universe exists and it has a form and this is this is really the most most profound thing in all the area of philosophy is that something is there and it has a form and then the second part and that is the question of man now everybody has a philosophy therefore and we do not need to ever read the philosophers to be influenced by the philosophers as I'll stress them maybe this morning or this afternoon and that is we can be influenced by the philosophers without ever reading a philosopher as a matter of fact there are millions and millions of people today who are dominated by the philosophers who live a short time ago, relatively a short time ago, a hundred and some years ago. Uh, people who are overwhelmingly dominated by this who never heard the name of the philosopher. They've never heard the name. The name has never crossed their, their horizon. And yet they're dominated by the thinking. And you must recognize this is another corollary to the thing I was talking about everybody being a philosopher. And that is that you can pick up your philosophy without ever analyzing the philosophy. Not everybody analyzes the philosophy which they pick up. They pick it up in the art museum, they pick it up in the Reading Time magazine, New York Times, something, without ever analyzing it. But just because they don't analyze it, doesn't mean for a moment that they're not affected by it, and not their life is not controlled by it. Nor for those of us who are Christians, does it mean that we must ever always we must never forget that we are always preaching the gospel into that philosophy that people hold. So let us sort of an introduction to urge you to realize that these things are not just a set of academic facts to get down on a piece of paper I will come to the thing I've stressed in a couple of my books and in my lectures and that is that I believe there's a watershed in philosophy with the name of four men now I do want to say that if you are students of philosophy if some of you have come out of being studying philosophy there is a a possibility of something which I do not feel is the thing I want to spend my time on in a series of lectures like this and it would be very minute on the amount of influence each of these four men, in co- in contrast to the other three. Uh, so, for example, I would put my great emphasis on Jean-Jacques Rousseau because I thought he, I think he broke the he broke the ice, he broke the way into the modern thinking. A great number of people, however, would put their uh, uh, their primary interest upon the second man that I would mention, that is, Immanuel Kant. And so, a lot of people would be critical of my work simply because I don't put as much emphasis on Kant uh as they think i should but that in a way has nothing to do with what i present in my books or my lectures what is what matters in my books and my lectures is understanding their four men and you feed into it the input input up to those four men philosophy was a certain thing after these four men philosophy was something else and the exact question of the mix between the four men may be interesting to the students of philosophy, but it doesn't need to influence us. All we need to do is understand these four men in a passing in a passing way, and yet a true way. So therefore, if someone wants to put more emphasis on Immanuel Kant, it doesn't change anything in the chief thrust that I give in my lectures and in my writing. Now, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I think, was the, is the important one, because, as I say, he was the first one who began to work the way he, he began to work uh, in the modern world. It does not say that it did not have previous roots again because you remember we go back into the area of uh, the High Renaissance and we saw the whole development of the and Great program and you remember that Leonardo da Vinci had already seen all those years before modern man uh, the fact that if you begin with rationalism this is my definition of rationalism and you begin with mathematics you end only with particulars and you're bound to end only with mechanics And he tried to have more of soul. So, as I emphasize Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I'm not saying that nobody before had felt some of the tensions. But the distinction is, the distinction is that the men, though they felt the tensions, were optimistic as to their solution. And that is, to my mind, the difference between the old philosophy and the new philosophy. It's the difference between an optimism and a pessimism. But it's a very special kind of optimism and a very special kind of pessimism. It's the old philosophers never never did agree that no one had found this factor of with rationalism plus rationality finding a unified field of knowledge inside of which all of re, all of reason, all of knowledge and all of life would fit. They would all acknowledge, knowledge. They never found it, but they were optimistic. Somebody would find it. This is the distinction. And uh, after all, Leonardo was was optimistic, wasn't he? He was optimistic that it would be possible for the. For the sensitive people the paint the universal in uh, their painting, and so he was really an optimist and he felt that it would be possible to fail, but he thought it would be possible now Jean-Jacques Rousseau Jean-Jacques Rousseau felt this tension very very strongly now I can leave the same line on the board that I've left there from before and what you can say is that he felt the growth of the machine the reason was leading reason on the basis of rationalism what leading into the growth of the cosmic machine. By the time you get to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the sensitive men were feeling this. And the machine was in, exhibited to them, the cosmic machine, in various ways, but very especially, very especially, in the machine of society, the machine of society. They felt that they were there was nothing but mechanics and that they were being manipulated by society. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, put forth the concept If you have an autonomous... Down here you have an autonomous machine. He tried to offset this with an autonomous freedom. I um, I really do feel that Jean-Jacques Rousseau is the key. The Durants, I'm very interested in the Durants writing their history. I forget the technical term of the book. The history of their history of the world. In the the last period, bringing this up to date, the first man they deal with is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, as the man who opens the door. And I think they're right in this. I feel that really there's a there's something clicks here. There's a difference. But there's one thing you must notice, and that is you see, in other words, you have changed the you have changed your formulation, and the change of formulation itself, the very word, the very change of words becomes significant. Because before you had nature and grace. And now you no longer have such terms as nature and grace. What you have terms of is mechanics and freedom which is a very different thing, psychologically. Not only only otherwise, but psychologically. It's an extremely different thing. The whole psychological thing has turned. it is freedom as opposed to mechanics. There is no place even for such a word as grace. Even though grace was not Christian grace, but universal. There's no no place for such a word as this even anymore. Even the word, even the word disappears. So now what you have is his putting forth this concept of an autonomous freedom. Now, the thing to notice is that you can talk about these other things sort of hid, sort of hid the fact that, you, that these were irreconcilable on the basis of rationalism. And let me, re- let me again remind you what rationalism is that what irrationalism is, because I find constantly, no matter how many times I define it, people confuse rationalism with reason. And this you must not do. A person like myself is not a rationalist, even though some people seem to say so, in their critique of my work, which always amuses me a little bit. After all, I say it against rationalism. I'm not a rationalist, but I do believe in the validity of reason. And rationalism is man beginning entirely from himself. I've gone over this before, but let me say it again so that you'll be awake on Monday morning. Um, <laughs> the, the rationalism is man beginning only from himself, and though he is finite, gathering enough particulars to make his own universals and rejecting all Outside knowledge is specifically all knowledge from God. That's by definition what rationalism is. There is no place for rebel knowledge from anybody else except autonomous man. So with rationalism, <coughs> rationalism, what we find is, is that the problem of reason now is coming up because these a man like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Emmanuel Kant hope to keep the two together. But if you think about it even for five minutes, it will become obvious that it's impossible on the basis of reason to hold an autonomous, cosmic, all pervasive machine on one hand and an autonomous greatest simultaneously on the other. You see don't you feel there's a there's a torque? It's here, it's like this. It's it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Now out of this, but they still hoped, you see, they had the habit of optimism. Man was going to conquer on the basis of his reason, out of the higher nations and out of the enlightenment. Now, out of this comes the modern world in a very real way because out of this comes, out of the concept of an autonomous freedom comes Gogan and the painter. go and the painter stands at a very crucial point in this, in, the, in this whole struggle because he's the first one who brings these things down to the area where more men, can, more men can be affected by them, namely in the field of art. And you remember I spent a lot of time back at the High Renaissance emphasizing that after you had... Uh, after you had um, the philosophy uh, of Thomas Aquinas, it began to spread through, first through the painters, through Chimbury and Giotto, and then through the writers, through Dante and Petrarch and Boccaccio. And then it, began, it became more general. Well, now, curiously enough, we find exactly the same thing, an exact parallel in our own period. The philosophers said it, and if the philosophers had only had said it, a very limited number of people would have been influenced by it. But when the painters began to paint it, a large number of people, and especially in a place, a culturally orientated country like France, began to be influenced by it. And you can feel what this autonomous freedom means if you study the life of Gauguin. Because Gauguin, Gauguin painted in France, he was married, had children, and then he, he suddenly felt the autonomous machine crushing him and his art. And so therefore he wanted to be free and have an autonomous freedom. But now what where did he what did he leave in order to get his autonomous freedom he left a geographical location namely france because france is so highly cultured and because the culture society of france is, is so formulating and so confining in his mind so culture you see it isn't just it isn't just now a philosophic expression of freedom as freedom it becomes anything which confines anything which confines anything which confines becomes the enemy and this is this becomes the french culture so he leaves and he goes to tahiti and he believes by painting in tahiti he will have his autonomous freedom and of course it's always autonomous freedom always has large sexual implications so it had with Goga, a large sexual implication but it failed he found that it wouldn't work he found it wouldn't work and as i've given in one of my books i forget which one whether it's escape from reason or the god who is there his great painting that shows his failure is What Went Wither in the Boston Art Gallery. If you ever get to Boston, you must go to the Boston Art Gallery and see his painting What Went Wither. And in What Went Wither, you have the, 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 the collapse of his hope. And, so, and, and you must realize that already with, already with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the ugliness of an autonomous freedom becomes obvious. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example, had, oh, had his, own, his own children, his own illegitimate children. And with all, he'd write great things about the beauty of raising children. But he put his own children in an orphanage. His own children go into an orphanage. The same thing is true with Gauguin. Gauguin, in order to achieve his freedom, uh, left his wife and his family, and we have letters from his wife pleading for food for their children. But you see, it didn't matter anymore, because what matters is an autonomous freedom. Can you feel this? And it's really important to see. Because the next thing that happens after Gauguin comes the ideal of a Bohemian life the only life, and the artist without uh, the artist who becomes the hero who breaks every taboo he breaks every taboo and you see it's an exact correlation here between Jean-Jacques Rousseau Gogo, Gogo's painting it's all one piece the artist is a man who stands against the taboos of society It's no longer just the taboos of God which is again an important thing to understand it isn't that the you're standing just against the taboos of God but you're standing against the taboos of man and autonomous freedom really means autonomous personal freedom It always comes down to the same thing an autonomous personal freedom and never mind anybody else if you're Gauguin and you have children if you're uh, john jacques russo and you have children it's never mind In the bohemian life you hurt other people it doesn't matter uh, um, an artist will take his model and have sexual relationship to her and then turn her out when she's no longer beautiful the whole thing is there. The autonomous freedom is an ugly freedom. Now, the the thing that makes this important is that this, after the Bohemian life, came the hippie mentality. So now we're down to our 1964. And it can be traced exactly through through Jean-Jacques Rousseau. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't need to develop these other men, though I think you have to for completion, these other four. But already with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you have the whole structure. You have the whole structure of, you have the structure of uh, the structure of the uh, autonomous freedom standing against the machine, the cosmic machine, leading down to the bohemian life and the destruction of any sense of anything that confines to the hippies. So the hippie had the hippie had very much this uh, idea uh, of the fact that you uh, that it didn't matter. You just you lived your own life and you hurt other people. You see, you had this in the hippie life very 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 thoroughly. It was so supposed to be so beautiful and uh hate asbury in san francisco they were going to teach the world beauty but it became exceedingly ugly i've never seen a more ugly place in my life geographically than when the hippies got done with hate asbury when you walked through it was awful it was really awful now some of it undoubtedly was due to the police because the police would make sw- uh, would make sw- uh, sweep up these young people and windows would get broken in the, the troubles. so some it belong some of the troubles belong to the police but the, the, if there'd been no police it would have been just as ugly They just left it a desert. When, when they got done with Haight Asbury, it wasn't, it wasn't worth doing anything with. It was awful. And you must have seen it was the same with the sexual experience of many, many young girls. So you had something like 10 or 20,000 girls in a very short period of time, a couple years, flee to San Francisco. Girls 12, 13, 14 years of age. Well, by the time, by the time they were done, done being used there, uh, they were what the youngsters themselves expressed as over the hill by the time they were 14 they had become something ugly. So that which promises beauty, in other words, the freedom without form which promises beauty, will, I think, mathematically lead to ugliness. I think it's an absolute mathematical equation. A, ma- a thing which promises beauty, apart from form, will mathematically lead to ugliness. And I think it's going to be this way because we live in a fallen world. And anyway, and if we didn't live in a fallen world, of course we'd have the form so this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau and I can't stress I can't stress <coughs> over, overly stress, it seems to me the influence that Jean-Jacques Rousseau had leading right up to the hippie world you can think of Tim Leary and his life of just walking through and destroying people and now he's, he's dumped his wife and he's with, he rising his wife that he had when he lived near us there in Switzerland and now he's dumped her and now he's with a young girl well, what happens to the wife does anybody cry for the wife i wonder who cries for the wife beside myself and i am this it's ugly it's all you can say oh you don't you walk on people in this sense now the next man the next man had exactly the same struggle but on a more germanic level namely a more formulated level and he was Emmanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant really had the same problem, and he had the phenomenal the world, world of, of external world, the phenomenal and the noumenal world. He used different terminology, but in reality, it is the same thing. And this is the world of phenomena, the world of that which surrounds us, which is open to be weighed and touched and measured. Uh, in other words, this is the area in which you deal with mathematics. The phenomenal world is the world in which you deal with mathematics, it's the world in which you you can measure it, you can weigh it, you can do various other things under mathematical structure. The nominal world is the world of meaning and of value. The world of meaning and of value. Now, John Jacques Rousseau, uh, uh, pardon, emmanuel Kant for a lifetime tried to keep these together. He's still trying to keep them together. And those who are, are especially committed to feeling the Kant as the center of the modern of the com- comprehension and would spend would give volumes and volumes and volumes, analyzing Immanuel Kant and his results. But in reality, I think the results are already torn back here in jean jacques Rousseau. So, although, as I say, I have no great zeal as to who wins out in Black marks, whether it's Kant or Rousseau, uh, the important thing is to notice that they, when they get done, they both end in the same place now when you get so here you have now the problem it seems to be one of and can't really understood the problem a little further on (coughs) is that how are you going to generate how are you going to generate meaning and how are you going to generate value in the structure where's it coming from and you can't do it he never was able his chance great failure was the failure of not being able to hold these together so again you feel the same as you feel over here and that is the titanic torque. And here again you get the titanic torque the torque is there it's, it's like a thing with a great spring to it held together with a thread and you can feel it's ready to spring apart uh, at any given moment now the the next man carried this still further and he he was a little different he came out of this you can't put him into the same kind of structure uh, though he was the result of it and that is you see from the beginning from the beginning of philosophic man and thinking man man had always felt that the answer would be the in the area of antithesis of being able on the basis of a rationalistic beginning with reason to say that uh, a certain thing was true and another thing therefore was not true this is antithesis so this is in the area this is the area of knowing uh, of epistemology and philosophy and knowing, and under the, in the study of, uh, philosophy of epistemology, it's under the heading of methodology, and the methodology of man's thinking in the past had always been antithesis. So, the methodology of the epistemology was antithesis prior up to this. Now, however, by the time you get to Kant, man had been trying this, as I see it, from the time of the Greeks. And on the basis of rationalism, for this reason, they had been a- trying on the basis of antithesis to come to this unified field of knowledge. And the, it always reminds me of, of a round room. And if you have an absolutely round room, large round room, large as a base, a uh, large as, say, a football field, uh, and it was pitch black in this room, and there's no windows and doors in this room. And you should picture it rather large, so you could picture a, a gentle curve with a wall. Uh, it was, uh, it was around the circumference of this room and you put a man in the middle of it and he felt his way to the wall and there were no doors or windows as I've said in the, in, the, in the wall and he would feel his way around looking for an exit several times before it would dawn on him that he had been going around in the circle and there was no room, no exit and I think, I think this is really the modern philosophic no exit that it dawned on these men that they had tried all kinds of schools of philosophy, materialism uh, idealism uh, parallelism all the big schools of philosophy over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again and it always has failed and it gradually dawned on them that there wasn't an exit on the basis of their system and now we're coming to the, toward toward the pessimism toward the pessimism of modern man well I'm supposed to stop at 45 thank you I don't have my little piece of paper with morning. Um, they, um, they went around and round and round. Now, suddenly, suddenly, Hegel broke the cycle. Because Hegel said, let's try a new methodology. I don't know if he ever himself used these words, but it's really what occurred. And I always like to picture uh, Hegel sometimes in a German beer hall, talking in his student days, or slightly later to his friends, suddenly bringing his beer mug down on the table with a crash and saying, I've got it. Instead of antithesis, let it say, everything is thesis. And, and that sets up an antithesis, and the answer is always synthesis. And if he did that, and, and the, the waiter, the big German, waiter, really he heard him, I'm sure he said, these students are crazy. But he didn't realize that he'd heard the sentence. This is purely imaginative on my part. <laughs> but I'm, uh, but uh he didn't realize he'd heard the sentence which was going to change the world because antithesis died and antithesis completely has dominated now if you want a date we can i can give you one here hegel lived 1770 to 1831 so it took about 150 years for these things are slightly more beginning with jean-jacques rousseau these things to arrive at 1964 but i'm convinced 1964 is the mathematical certainty generated from these earlier days of philosophic thinking so hegel therefore smashed the the concept of truth in the classical sense and from hegel on truth in the classical sense has ceased to exist even as an ideal and this is the distinction between the older thinking and the modern thinking. I'm convinced this is the ge- real generation gap. The real generation gap is the way you look at truth. Uh, that the older people, the older, the older philosophers, and coming down, you take the majority of, the silent majority might still think that theoretically that somebody could find truth in the area of science. They think what they're hearing when they hear the things is truth against an antithesis. But they don't realize that in reality in every realm today men are not working in the area of truth anymore in the old sense of truth everything has become a statistical average and that's all so what you have what you have is suddenly uh, the truth dies and i am I'm totally convinced that you cannot in any way understand what happened in 1964 and for you, those of you who are giving three years to learning to preach the gospel, I'm convinced you're not going to be able to do it The 20th century man unless you understand these things and move to meet them. Because there's no use saying to a man Christianity is true if he does not believe the truth exists. It becomes a meaningless sentence. You've got to go behind this with 20th century men. Now, as a, as a practical parenthesis, it doesn't mean that everybody you meet is a 20th century man. And uh, if you... The, Uh, upper middle class people still don't realize how thoroughly they've been affected by this and so in the preaching the gospel if you preach the gospel uh in the uh if i may express it in the old way you will have some results among these people but on the other hand you're not going to touch the, uh, the, the the expanding reservoir of 20th century people and the problem is that as the young people go away to college they become influenced by all this in a more comprehending, a more or less comprehending way, and therefore they then spin off from the pool of the old group to the pool of the new. And the pool, the pool of the new group is, is getting larger and larger and larger, and this pool of the old group is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think this becomes a very practical dilemma with evangelicalism, because most of our ministers still preach just to the old group. Let's not play games about this. And that because of this, therefore, the reservoir of those who are, can, uh, who, who, I'm not minimizing the work of the Holy Spirit. He can do what he will, but I'm talking about our responsibility. The reservoir of those who can understand our message on the grounds in which we have it, and we believe it, and the Bible teaches it, and God has revealed it, are an increasingly smaller group. In other words, the potential for our churches are, is growing less and less and less and less. There may be flurries of Jesus movements, all kinds of things, but the potential, as I say it, is less. Unless we learn to meet 20th century man on his own ground, unless we learn uh, to preach the gospel with its unchanging truth so that it can be understood by the people of our generation. And this, I think, is the big crisis in evangelicalism, the other crisis. But truth does not exist. Incidentally, I would just say that I think this has permeated all kinds of things. I think the factor today that many evangelicals are perfectly willing so not to practice truth, to use my terminology. I think partially there's a partial partial uh, cause of this is that they have been influenced by syncretism without knowing it the truth really has lost its values what matters is balances like like a Calder mobile Uh, what matters is how you balance it not whether it's true Uh, now when you have there's another thing that this carries a very great weight and that is you must realize that hegelianism has won the battle on both sides of the Iron Curtain Um, we have a number of Christians who quite properly see a terrible, terrible danger in communism, but who make what I think is a, is a bad mistake of thinking that the whole battle is against communism. So therefore, as long as therefore they would be committed to giving the whole of the battle against communism, that if we could just get rid of communism and its influences out of America, we wouldn't have any of these troubles. Uh, that uh, 1964 Berkeley was a communist plot etc etc et i think they're entirely mistaken i think that the communists are very pleased to use it and i feel communism is a great threat and i personally give as much as i can to fight communism and i hate communism wherever it's had control it's meant the christians have been killed and this is true in in, in uh in, in asia today as well as it is anywhere else in the world and we must face this fact. But when we get all done, on the other hand, you must understand that there is something behind the communism. The communism is not basically, not basically a uh, uh, an economic theory. It is Hegelian materialism, and it's the Hegelian dialectics stands behind behind material, uh, behind class communism, of Marx and Engels. So therefore, Hegel is the man really that is the problem. Now, insofar, if I'm right, that Hegel has won on both sides of the Iron Curtain, and today men are committed to synthesis rather than antithesis. I do believe with all my heart that if I could do this today, which I would rapidly do if it were possible, and every communist influence would be gone out of America, you would have solved nothing. I just wish I could say that so everybody could understand that. It's not that I am weak on communism. Please understand, communism is an enemy. But, but you wouldn't get rid of our problems in America if you could get rid of communism. Because Hegel, Hegel, the Hegel's doctrine stands back of communism, and Hegel has won. He's completely won. And therefore, our, our public men and our private men and our press and everything else you can imagine uh, are committed to the new view in varying degrees of comprehension. A very, uh, uh, in varying degrees of analyzation, they are committed to the view of Hegelian synthesis. So therefore truth does not exist what you have what you have instead of a truth what you have is always a synthesis always a synthesis, and then it goes on unendingly you see and that is that's the, the synthesis now becomes uh, a thesis and that sets up an antithesis and that ends with a synthesis and the synthesis then becomes a thesis and it sets up a an synthesis, and that becomes a synthesis unendingly. But if you notice, you, you're you not going anywhere. It's bang, 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 bang. and you, you haven't gone anywhere. You're on an axis. In other words, truth is not really going to progress. What progresses is merely this whole series of synthesis. That's a bit simple, simplified. But, uh, but for those of you who don't know anything about any of this, it's an adequate explanation of exactly our, our problem. So with, with Hegel, then, you came to this place, with Hegel, you came to the place where truth died. So you've gone, gone through nature and grace, then nature, then the machine and nature and freedom, and then you've come to the phenomenal and the noumenal world, and by that time, you see this torque I was speaking of, this huge spring tied by a slight thread by the time of Kant, has broken, and it's sprung apart, and Hegel puts a stamp upon it, and truth, is, truth has really died. The one thing you have to understand about hegel is that he himself didn't realize how completely he had uh, he had destroyed things he was an idealist in philosophy and as an idealist in philosophy he was still hoping for some kind of reason and synthesis but really he had ripped it and the people who followed him just carried it to its logical conclusion now the next man who followed comes naturally out of this. Now, Kierkegaard, during Kierkegaard, spent his life against Hegel, But in, the reality, in reality, he was Hegelian, in the very basic sense, of not really having a unified truth. So therefore, therefore, though he fought, and this often happens in philosophy, and incidentally, it often happens in theology. You often find people fighting theological battles against people, and yet if you look at them though so they are fighting against it, they themselves are impregnated by the same problems even though they don't know it something that takes a lifetime of, of prayer and analyzation not to get caught in, and then I guess we all get caught in somewhere along the line but with guards, with you come to the next step and that is now you have reason and reason will always lead to pessimism in other words, it will always be lowly to the mechanics it will only lead to the mechanics Therefore, on the basis of this, reason has taken such a battering now that you try to find your answers in the area of numbers. So you could remember, you remember Immanuel Kant. Here you'll have, you have the phenomenal world, which is the world of mathematics, and the problem with values and meaning. Now by the time you get to, uh, to Soren Kierkegaard, he, is the, he has accepted, and especially the Kierkegaardians who followed him, accepted the positive factor uh, that meaning and value. Will always be in other words anything optimistic will always be in the area of non-reason reason has no place and this is the thing i find very very hard to get into people to people to accept and that is the realization of how completely for modern man reason has no place in the answers man has given up the hope of reason so you've come to a very curious factor they started with a hope of rationalism plus reason And now they have given up the reason for their rationalism so reason has died the great hope of the age of enlightenment is dead it is just plain dead the reason was going to conquer all modern man does not believe reason is going to conquer all modern man believes that he isn't going to come to a unified field of knowledge now notice that this is not optimistic it is pessimistic they did not come. Now, we, when we get to our university professors now and our writers and our students, which we're discussing with, they act as though it's a great virtue to live in this system. But in reality, they didn't come to it because they wanted to. They came to it because they were forced to it. They were forced to it because reason on the basis of rationalism had led them only to pessimism. So this is, therefore, an act of despair. And that's why in my lectures I always call it the line of despair passing the line of despair what kind of despair just a a, a passing despondency no a very basic philosophic despair of the finding of truth modern man has given up the finding of truth so therefore i always try to make it very clear uh, that this line is very thick indeed it's, i can't draw it with a single line anymore in it. it is a very very thick line we must understand that for the real thinker many men are only halfway real thinkers and she. but for the real thinker there is absolutely no osmosis between this and this there's no interchange. that as long as you have as long as you have reason it will always be pessimistic because it will always be mechanical you will remember leonardo understood where the dilemma was very amazing that leonardo understood it so thoroughly on the other hand the man cannot and i think we know why is because he is made in the image of god and being made in the image of God, he cannot give up the sense of value and meaning and significance in these other things. Therefore, he tries to seek his, uh, his optimistic area always in this area of non reason And you remember, I'm sure, in my illustration uh, that I use to try to get people to really understand, though I often wonder if they do understand. And that is that this is really a line that cannot be crossed. And so I like to say that it's 10,000 feet thick. <coughs> and it's written by solid concrete and it's reinforced by, by by barbed wire and the barbed wire is charged with 10,000 volts of electricity and I use this over and over and over again in the hope of people who read my books and read a couple books and hear it two or three times that'll gradually dawn on them that's really this way there is no interchange here at all and the trouble with the middle class parents when they come up against the kids who think this way is that they have a hard job of understanding that there's no transference and not only this, not only this, but when we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel, if we're not careful, acting as though there is a transference. When in reality, for modern man, I'm convinced there is no transference. But everything, everything, ever, as soon as this is in an unpassable line, reason will always lead to the pessimism. Non reason, and you seek your answers up here in the area of non reason. Everything that makes human life of value is in the area of non reason everything that makes human life of value love significance beauty meaning values categories all these things are in the area of uh non-reason and religiously the kirkegaardians and again it's a little difficult sometimes way you should say kirkegaard or kirkegaardian uh and when i'm in denmark some of the people there i have to be especially careful to make plain that uh we aren't Kierkegaard himself, I think, held this view, but it was those who followed him that carried it to its logical conclusion. Uh, but he had a concept, therefore, of faith. So what you have now is faith. And in in Kierkegaard's in Kierkegaard, uh, writings, religiously, it's his passages on Abraham. Abraham's faith without reason. Abraham's faith without reason when he was called upon to offer his son, it was a non-reason. And he, it was a value to perform a non-reason. But I think this shows Kierkegaard's basic fallacy, and that is it, he, he really hasn't read Genesis carefully. Because it was not a faith without reason, because of all the previous things that had happened to Abraham. God had revealed truth to Abraham when he was still on earth at the Chaldees. He had been with him. Uh, he had seen God he had talked with God there were manifolds of things that had happened in the area of the normal life of down here of reason that gave him a reason to act in faith but for Kierkegaard there was no reason and I just think Kierkegaard really's problem was the scripture I don't think he took the scripture seriously and I think his basic problem was here Uh, same way he never showed any sign of an understanding of forgiveness on the basis of the blood of Christ so when he went into a prostitute uh, at one time when he was engaged, he never could find forgiveness for this, and therefore he made his fiancée miserable forever. And the reason I think he made her, forgive, her, her miserable forever is because he didn't understand the Scriptures when it speaks of forgiveness upon the basis of the blood of Christ. And upon the basis of the blood of Christ, there is forgiveness. And I think what he didn't understand on the basis of Scripture on forgiveness, he didn't understand in the area of faith. But in reality, Abraham was not called in his faith to act in the area of non-reason. It was faith, but it was not a blind faith. It was not a faith without a base. And I think this then becomes important, and it's my second appendix, uh, in uh, in he is there and he's not silent. And that he's there and he's not silent, as I may have said before, I feel to be sort of my crucial book. I worked on it for five years after I wrote The God Who Was There and *Escape From Reason and uh, the last appendix you remember uh, on the, uh, and he's there and he's not silent is Faith versus Faith if you've never read that I urge you to read it because really this is the debate there's two, there's two things, both of which are meant they use the word faith but which really have no relationship one to the other and the historic Christian view of faith has no relationship to this concept of faith of trying to find everything including values and meaning in the area of unreason. i use an illustration there that many of you have read it i'm sure but i'll use it now in closing and that is the distinction is like this supposing we're out in the swiss mountains uh and we we have a guide and we're way up high somewhere and the fog closes in it's a bad time of year it's a dangerous time to climb the fog closes in and the vera glass the ice begins to form on the rocks uh, and the um, and the guide says to us, I'm sorry, but you'll be dead by morning. And this happens, this is not imaginative, this happens many times in the Swiss Alps. Uh, and uh, somebody finally says, they, he keeps them moving out along the shoulder so they have no idea where they are anymore. And somebody says to him, well, if, if I hung and I dropped and I found a ledge uh, 10 feet down, I hung in close and dropped and hit a ledge 10 feet down, what would happen? And the, uh, the guide would say, well, maybe you'd make it to the morning probably make it to the morning and some fellow in the deep fog with no more reason than that would hang and drop now that's really Guardian faith it's really exactly what it is there's no reason whatsoever for the drop suppose in comparison i'm out on the side of the mountain and i'm in a parallel situation and there we are and we're going to die and we hear a voice and the voice says to us Uh, you cannot see me, but I know where you are from your voices and I've been in these mountains, man and boy, for 50 years and I know exactly where you are and I want to tell you that if you hang and drop, uh, there's a ledge 10 feet down and I'll come, you'll make it and I'll come and get you in the morning. Now, I wouldn't hang and drop in a minute for the simple reason maybe he would be my enemy. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he's ignorant or secondly, maybe he's my deliberate enemy so I'd ask him some questions. And I'd ask him his name because in the Swiss Alps you can tell a lot by people's names whether what they were, whether they're men of the mountains or not. And you'd ask him other questions. Then after you'd ask him and what to you is an adequate set of questions, you hang and drop. Now that's Christian faith, and it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with a drop in the dark. There's reasons you can ask for your faith, and the Bible invites you always to ask these reasons and many other space-time proofs to Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in these books but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name you're not asked O Theophilus, why does Luke write to Theophilus? it's so he might know the things which are certain so what you have in the Bible you always have you have an, an area where the, you remember in my lecture on the Reformation uh, I pointed out they had a unity on the basis of revelation now then the, the bible invites to ask questions and then indeed to believe god but don't you see that these two things use the word faith it's faith and faith but it's faith versus faith because the one idea of faith has no relationship to the other none whatsoever none whatsoever and i just say in passing that we as evangelicals must be careful in our preaching not to fall into kirkagardian preaching of a kind of faith without meaning to we must be very very careful it's easy to do It is not biblical. It's not what our spiritual forefathers taught. Uh, And it isn't, uh, it certainly is not the thing which constitutes historic Christianity. So now by the time we get to Kierkegaard, therefore, where we are is the place where these men have given up their reason for the sake of their rationalism. And they have, they are, by the time of Kierkegaard, you have a complete dichotomy. And now it is not nature and grace, nor is it even nature and freedom. It has now become reason and non-reason do you see the degeneration the degeneration goes right down the line nature and grace nature and freedom reason versus non-reason you have a complete complete degeneration and as we'll pick up this afternoon we'll talk about something a bit more about the downstairs and the upstairs